Mark chapter 8, we're going to pick up right where we left off last week. Last week, of course, I wasn't here. Uh, 49 people and myself went to Israel, and we had an absolutely amazing time. We sent back the videotape from Mark chapter 8. Did you guys enjoy that? Good. I hope you enjoyed that. We uh, worked hard to get it to you, and we were excited to do that. And the Lord did amazing things in our group in Israel. And uh, I have good news. I went to the garden tomb where Jesus was buried, and he wasn't there. Amen? Amen. I went to the place of the skull, Golgotha, where he was crucified, and he wasn't on the cross. Amen? Amen. I said amen. amen. Oh, people, don't paint a picture of my Jesus on the cross. He ain't there. He's risen. Amen? I went to the Sea of Galilee where Jesus walked on the water. I went to Capernaum where Jesus called Peter. We went and we saw Peter's house in Capernaum, a 2,000-year-old city. Peter's house is there. The synagogue is there where Jesus taught in John chapter 6 where he healed people. We saw it with our own eyes. We went to Jerusalem. I stood and taught the Bible on the um, southern steps of the Temple Mount where Peter gave the first sermon after Pentecost and 3,000 were added to the church that day. Went to the Mount of Olives where Jesus stood and wept over Jerusalem because he didn't recognize him as a Messiah where he made the triumphal entry and where we are told in Zechariah 14 that at his second coming, the Lord will set his feet down on the Mount of Olives and we, the holy ones, with him. So if you didn't make it with us to Israel on that trip, uh, you've got another chance at the second coming. Mark chapter 8, we're going to pick it up right where we left off. Uh, Sort of. We're going to backtrack a little bit. I couldn't help it. Verse 34. And Jesus summoned the multitude with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel shall save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, The Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. In chapter 9, verse 1. And Jesus was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who shall not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the amazing things that you speak to us in your word. And I'm aware that as we come to your word this morning that we have a challenging text before us, not that it's hard to understand, but that it is sometimes hard to live. And I know as you've been doing to me through the study of this text, you're going to shake many of us in our very core. For both the saved and the unsaved, for the saved, you're going to check us, where are we? Where are we with following you? with denying self, with laying aside the things of the world and the desires of the flesh and pressing into our Savior. And for the unsaved, where are you? What does it profit a man to gain the world and lose his soul? And so, Jesus, we submit ourselves to the work that you want to do in us now. As we've opened up our Bibles, we open up our hearts before you. And we say, Lord, come and speak. Transform us. Save us from just doing church. Save us from just hearing a sermon transform us through the teaching of your word. We believe your word to be authoritative and inerrant and sufficient. So speak to us through it. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Oh, when the pastor says amen, everybody says amen. 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 Okay, let's stop that. Last week, we were literally and physically 50 of us in Caesarea Philippi. You guys were there with us vicariously experiencing it through the big screen. We remember that Caesarea Philippi was that place just north of the Sea of Galilee, several miles, where Jesus took his disciples to pose to them a very important question and then to give to them some very important information. 
So he took him to Caesarea Philippi, and you remember the backdrop there, that it had been a place of worship both in Greek culture and in Roman culture, of pagan worship, of the worship of false gods. You remember that there we had the idols to the false Greek god Pan. Pan is that idol that is uh, half goat and half man. And you remember in the cliff, there were niches in that cliff behind where I was teaching for them to set up their idols. At that time, there was also a temple to Caesar Augustus. And so it was really a spiritual hotbed at the time. Anything that was new in the land spiritually blew through Caesarea Philippi. People would come there and they would engage in all sorts of idolatry and sick practices to their false god. And Jesus stood on that rock before the false gods, never one to shy away from a confrontation with false gods. And he said, who do the people say that I am? And the answer was no surprise. The answer was the same then as it is right now. Well, Jesus, it could be a lot of people. I mean, some are saying you're John the Baptist. Some saying Jeremiah the prophet. Some this and that and the other. In other words, there were a lot of opinions about Jesus back then. The popular opinion was unsure. It was all over the map. Jesus was not so concerned with a popular opinion. He immediately wanted to make it personal with his men. And so he said to his disciples, but who do you say that I am? And you remember the answer? Who spoke up? Peter. Peter said, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And then we pick it up in verse 31. And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Jesus began to tell them explicitly of the cross. Now, prior to this time, he hadn't revealed to them the cross and that he would suffer at the hands of the religious and the political authorities or that he would die and rise again. He hadn't revealed this yet. He revealed it at the most opportune time, at a very chosen time, which was just after his identity was made sure. Prior to this, there was a feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000, the walking on the water, raising people from the dead, casting out demons. But the disciples didn't get it until they saw Jesus in front of the backdrop of false religion. Whenever you place our Lord in front of the backdrop of false religion, the truth is going to destroy the lie. The light is going to penetrate the darkness. When they saw him against that backdrop of this false Greek god Pan and of Caesar declaring himself to be Lord, Peter was bold to say, yeah, you're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. And so it's that moment where Jesus reveals the cross. In other words, He wanted the cross to be totally coupled with his identity. Listen very carefully. He wanted the cross to be totally coupled with his identity. As soon as it was revealed that he was the Mashiach, the Messiah, he wanted the cross to be first and foremost in their mind for several reasons, which we'll talk about in this message. Why the cross, number one. Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, tells us this. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. God declared way back in the book of Leviticus that the blood is what allows us to live. The life is in the blood. In other words, if you drain the blood out of your veins, I don't care what you put in there, you're not going to live, understand? The life is in the blood. When the blood comes out, the life goes out. God told the nation of Israel that he gave them the blood for atonement on the altar, meaning the blood had to be spilt. And when the blood was spilt, it would make atonement for them. Now, what does atonement mean? Atonement means satisfaction for a wrongdoing. In other words, they, God's people, had done wrong, and God's wrath is that which needed to be satisfied. Now, in the Old Testament, when the sacrifices were made day in and day out, year in and year out, They didn't remove sins. You understand that? They didn't remove sins. They just made a covering for sin. If they removed sin, then the sacrifices wouldn't have to happen repeatedly. But we're told that it was over and over again, and the blood would make a mere covering for the sin, not a removal. We're told in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, 
that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's bad news. I've sinned, you've sinned, but it gets much worse. Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. What sin earns you is death. Not physical death. Physical death is absolutely inevitable. But spiritual death, meaning separation from God for eternity. Much worse than the mere uh, ceasing of your physical functions. The wages of sin, what sins earn you is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So because all of us have sinned, and the wages of sin is death, what could possibly be the payment for sin except for life, right? The penalty is death, and so a life makes payments, And the life is in the blood. And so for forgiveness to take place, blood had to be spilt. Now, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, the second part of that chapter tells us this. Without the shedding of blood, it is impossible for the forgiveness of sins. There is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4 tells us this. That it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. You understand the problem that they had in the culture of the day. Even those who were observant Jews seeking to follow God, the blood of bulls and goats, though it had to be spilt, couldn't take away the sins. It could, always, it could only make a temporary covering. It didn't take it away. John the Baptist was baptizing in the Jordan River. We were there. We just saw it, the Jordan River. John the Baptist was baptizing there. And no doubt there was a crowd of people around as he was preaching the coming of the kingdom of God, preparing the way for the Messiah, baptizing people for the repentance of sins. And one day there in John chapter 1, he's baptizing. And there's a bustle in the crowd and there's a movement. And all of a sudden, John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And every knowledgeable Jew, every observant Jew who studied the law would turn around and say, takes away? Don't you mean cover, John? No, behold the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. Takes it away, removes it as far as the east is from the west, buried it in the deepest sea. Not just a covering. That's right, amen. Do you remember Abraham? Father Abraham? Father Abraham was told by God to get up and go to a mount, Mount Moriah, which is now where the Temple Mount stands in Jerusalem, and sacrifice his son Isaac. In obedience to God, Abraham got up early in the morning. He went to the mountain. He told his homeboys to stay behind. He said, we're going to go up on the mountain and worship. And he put the wood on top of Isaac's shoulders, and Isaac carried the wood. And he went up there, and he built the altar, and he strapped Isaac to it, and he lifted the knife, and he was just about to take his own son's life in obedience to God. And the angel of the Lord said, wait, don't do it. Now I know that nothing in your heart is withheld from your God. He was testing him. Remember, it was the promise. It was the blessing. It was the promised son. Very important that whenever God pours out blessings in our lives, we're willing to give it back in an instant. If you hoard it for yourself, you'll become spiritually stagnant. And so he tested Abraham. Abraham said, man, I waited for this son 25 years, Lord. I'm getting super duper old. I'm not going to have any more of these things. But if you want him back, I'll give him to you. And the angel of the Lord said, wait a minute. Now I know your heart is for the Lord. God will provide himself a lamb. God will provide himself a lamb. Now, what did Abraham find stuck in the thicket? A ram. Not a lamb, but a ram. God said he would provide a lamb, but Abraham found there a ram. You see, the lamb was not yet to come. God would provide himself. God would drape himself in humanity, in Christ Jesus, and give himself to be the lamb of sacrifice. Behold the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. It was revolutionary. No one had ever taken away sins. The false gods could only be appeased for a moment. The God of the Old Testament would only cover sins for a time until it was time for another sacrifice. Jesus was the Lamb of God that took away the sins of the world. We're told in 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also died once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God. That is the goal of Jesus dying on the cross, is to bring us to God. Understand, 
as Jesus was communicating these things of the, cost of the gospel to the people in that time at Caesarea Philippi, it was profound. They were there worshiping the Greek god Pan, this half goat, half man thing. And he was not a happy God. He wasn't a nice God. In fact, the people were terrified of this false God. That's where we get our English word panic. I told you that last week. And they were required to sacrifice to this God and they would bring a goat to that cave from which water was flowing, which was known in that day as the gates of hell. Remember, we talked about that. You saw it on the video. That's what Jesus was talking. That's where he was standing when he said, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. And in that time when Jesus was there, there was a river flowing out of that cave. There's been an earthquake since then. It stopped the flow and now it flows out from underneath the mountain. We were there. It's cool water. It comes down from Mount Hermon and uh, it used to come out of the cave. Now it comes from underneath. But during that time when the water was flowing out, they would come and they'd come to this God that made them panic. Okay, panic God, here we are. We're not sure exactly what you want and we're a little bit afraid, but here's my best goat. And they'd throw it in that cave. And what they believed was that if it went in the cave and nothing came back out, everything was cool. But if it went in the cave and blood came running out in the water, Pan was mad and he didn't accept their offering. He didn't accept their sacrifice. What could they do at that point? They were only left to wonder why they and their sacrifice were rejected by their God. You see, they were only left with ambiguity, uncertainty, and rejection. And they would stand there and say, what did I do wrong? Was it the wrong goat? Was the goat too big? Was the goat too little? Did I not do it in the right way? Should I have started with my right hand and not my left? Am I wearing the wrong clothes today? Is Pan mad at my wife? Is Pan mad at my kids? Does Pan not like the chariot I drive? What is wrong with this God? Why is he mad at me? Why won't he accept me? You see, there is only ambiguity for the people. In the same way, there was a temple to Caesar built at that time. And Caesar and the nation of Rome would demand of its citizens and its conquered nations that they would say, Hail Caesar, Caesar is Lord. They would have to say, Caesar is Lord. This is why in the first century, many Christians were martyred for their faith. The Romans would come persecuting the Christians and they would say, Hey, say Caesar is Lord. Stop this Jesus is Lord business. And they would say, No, Jesus is Lord. And they would lose their life for it. But the Pope, the popular, the popular demand, and what was required by society was that you would say, Caesar is Lord. He sought to deify himself. Don't be too hard on him. Any one of us, given the opportunity, would do the same thing. We've all got something wicked in us that seeks to be deified, that wants to be exalted, that wants to be honored. That is why every single false religion teaches that you can become like God. Satan started that lie in Genesis. But they understood that Caesar was just a man, and here they were having to say Caesar is Lord. And so obviously this false god left them empty. And so here are these people in this region in the first century, and they have empty promises, empty souls, they're panicky from Pan, and they're burdened. And it's in that backdrop that Jesus says, I'm the Messiah. You said it right, Peter. The Messiah, the Son of God. And the way to my kingdom is going to be through the cross. Let's contrast Pan and Caesar with the words of Jesus in John chapter 10. Go to John 10, but keep your finger in Mark 8. We'll be back in a minute. John 10. There's some of the sweetest words of our Lord here. John 10, starting in verse 7. Jesus therefore said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. You and I are the sheep here that he's talking about. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he shall be saved. And shall go in and out and find pastor. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. I came that they might have life and might have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays his life down for his sheep. You see the difference there? 
Pan was a rejecting God. Jesus is the one who said, I came to lay my life down for you. Don't worry about how to appease me. You can't. You're in trouble. You're desperately wicked and full of deceit. But I've come to lay my life down for you. I am the door. If you enter through me, you will find peace and acceptance. You see, Jesus came into a culture and offered assurance of acceptance and pasture instead of panic. And some received it and some rejected it. Now look what the Lord says, starting in verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. When we were in Israel last week, during our first bit of the trip there, we were staying on the northern end of the Sea of Galilee. And just on the east, on the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee, is a valley that runs towards Nazareth. And it is a valley that Jesus walked through as he came from Nazareth down to Galilee. There's no doubt about that. And there's this big dramatic cliff overlooking that valley where he would have walked and overlooking the Sea of Galilee. And there's all these caves in the side of the cliff. And it was a stronghold of the Jews during the Bar Kokhba revolt. And it's just an, an absolutely wonderful thing to see. Some of us who uh, felt so good were getting up before dawn. I say us, I didn't do it. But some of the people on the trip were getting up before dawn and running a couple miles over to this mountain and up it. And there they were just meeting with the Lord, rejoicing in the Lord, celebrating his finished work. One morning, two of them were coming down, Dave and Jamie, and uh, there were some others there. And as Dave and Jamie were coming down, they had a wonderful treat from God. They saw there a bunch of sheep and a shepherd with his staff, moving the sheep along, just as shepherds have done in Israel for thousands of years. And they saw this amazing thing and and all the gospel flashing through their mind and Jesus talking about being the good shepherd and Jamie got so excited, she carries his camera around everywhere, she's a great photographer, that she jumped out in front of the sheep and started snapping pictures. What did the sheep do? Well, they panicked. What are you doing? And the sheep began to turn and run and bounce into each other and get all panicky. And Dave said the most amazing thing happened. The shepherd said one word, and the sheep froze. And they relaxed, and they gathered themselves. The shepherd said one word. My sheep hear my voice, Jesus said, and they know me, and I know them. That's what Jesus was talking about. In times of panic and in trouble, it ought to just be one word from God that sets you at peace, that sets you at ease. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Amen? Amen. He went on to say in verse 28, And I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand, and I and the Father are one. Jesus said, those who are mine, my sheep, I am holding them in my hand, and the Father is holding them in his hand, and ain't nobody can get you out of the hands of the Father and the Son. Amen? You see, Jesus came and offered a sure thing, the forgiveness of sins through repentance. But it wouldn't come apart from the cross. And so he says in verse 17 of the same chapter here, John 10, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one is taking it away from me. But I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. And so Jesus said that this relationship between the shepherd and the sheep, it hinges upon the fact that the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And so when he was revealed as the Messiah, the Son of God, he immediately wanted to communicate that Messiah means the cross. Messiah means a death on behalf of the multitudes and the resurrection from the dead. Three very important things that the cross accomplished for us. Many things, but three things I want to highlight right now. Turn to the book of Colossians. You still got your little fingers in Mark. Leave John behind. Go to Colossians. Colossians chapter 2. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Three things the cross accomplished. Number one, the salvation of men and the putting away of sin and death. 
We see it spoken of beautifully here in Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 13. And when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of... Uh, um, circumcision? Don't like to say that word, really. Of your flesh... He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and which was hostile to us, and He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. We understand from the book of Isaiah chapter 65 from Malachi chapter 3, from Daniel chapter 7, from Revelation chapter 20, that there are books in heaven. And that the books have good things and they have bad things. There's a book of good deeds and there's a book of life and there's a book of bad deeds. And God makes the entry. And God looks upon the heart of men. And so I happen to know that the certificate of debt against me, the decree against me that was hostile in heaven, in the book, long, big, it says, Brent Merrick, and the entry started while I was in my mother's womb. The Bible says we are conceived in sin. Doesn't take long for a baby to sin, does he? You don't have to teach a baby to say mine. You don't have to teach a baby to hit anybody. Babies are sinners. And so it started when we were little babies. And it went all through life. And God looks upon the heart. And my heart is desperately wicked and full of deceit. I agree with Jeremiah 17 about my own heart. It's desperately wicked and it's full of deceit. And so there was a big, giant list with my name on it in heaven. And it was a certificate of debt against me. What I owed God and the wages of my sin were death. In the first century, when someone was thrown into Roman prison, the Roman authorities would make out a certificate of debt against them. Here is the way that they have erred in the law. Here's their transgression. Here's what they did wrong. Here's how they broke the law. They would write it down, and they would nail it to the door of that prison. They would affix it to the door of that prison. And so if anybody came by and wondered why this guy was locked up, they could just read the list. Oh, my goodness. Wow, you're in there for a while. But when they had paid their dues... They were released, and an interesting thing took place. They would take that certificate of debt, and they would put on it liquid that would blot out the ink in which it was written on. Nobody could read any more the charges against them, and then they would give it to that person. And now somebody said, hey man, you were in jail, what was it for? And he'd go, I don't know. It used to say something here, but it's white as snow. I'm not sure. It says here that on the cross, Jesus canceled out our certificate of debt, having nailed it to the cross. And what did he say before he gave up his spirit in Greek? To Tetelestai. What does it mean? It is finished, paid in full. He was talking about that certificate of debt. Every wrong that has ever been recorded and would ever be is finished, paid in full, done away with because of the cross. The first thing we need to know that the cross accomplishes the salvation of men through the forgiveness of sins. Secondly, upon the cross, the enemy was defeated. Verse 15 of Colossians 2. It says, When he, speaking of God, had disarmed the rulers and authorities, speaking of Satan and demonic powers, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him, that is Christ Jesus, or the cross. On the cross, Satan and his minions and his demons were disarmed. They were conquered. They were relieved. They were made a public display of. In that culture, if you went to war against another army and you conquered that army, you would have the privilege of going to that conquered army, pulling out their highest ranking officer, throwing him down in front of both armies and standing on the back of his neck and rubbing his face into the dirt. It was called being made a public display of. That's what God did to Satan upon the cross. He made a public display of him. The enemy has come to kill, to steal, and to destroy, but I have come that you might have life and more abundantly. And there was a war, and Christ Jesus is the victor. Amen? Now, the ultimate fulfillment of that is, of course, in Revelation chapter 20. You can read it later. When Jesus Christ throws Satan into the abyss, and there he is tormented forever and ever. I'm sorry, not the abyss. Into the lake of fire, and there he is tormented forever and ever. Amen. Next time Satan reminds you of your wicked past, you tell him about his wonderful future. 
He's going to need some sunscreen in hell. And so he was disarmed. He was defeated through the power of the cross because the only thing that the enemy has going for him is the sinful hearts of men and women. But when those hearts are redeemed and sin is canceled out, he's got nothing left anymore except for that which we give him as Christians or a non-Christian. That's all he's got. You see, it's ridiculous, but we often give ground to the enemy. We often give opportunity to the enemy in our life, though he's a defeated foe. It would be as though you went to a country and you conquered this country in a great conflict and you stood there as a victor and then you said, uh, but why don't you come back and rule and, and rule over me? That wouldn't make any sense. And yet that's what Christians do day in and day out by giving the enemy opportunity in their lives, by giving the enemy ground through sin and through disobedience. I've been guilty of it, you're guilty of it. But listen, there's nothing in the Bible that says we have to do it. We can stand firm in the victory of our Lord. We can stand firm in the authority that we have as believers. The Bible says in James chapter 4, verse 7, resist the devil and he'll beat you up. No, that's not what it is. It says in James chapter 4, verse 7, resist the devil, but he ain't afraid. Resist the devil and he's just going to stay right there and mess with you. That's not what it says. It says in James chapter 4, verse 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Why? Because he's defeated by the king and you're the king's kids. Amen. Third thing that happened upon the cross is the establishment of God's kingdom with power. And this is one of the paramount points of today is that the power in God's kingdom comes through submission to the cross and the sacrifice of Christ. Look now in the first chapter of Colossians, verse 13. It says, For he, speaking of God, Colossians 1, 13, For he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You see, when we were redeemed, we entered into the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God was established with power at the point of the cross. And Jesus tells us that in our text. Go back now to where your finger is in Mark Mark 8 and 9. Mark 8 and 9. Jesus is going to contrast here the second coming and the first coming as he did repeatedly and as the Old Testament does in the same breath. Let's start in Mark 8 verse 38. Speaking of the second coming. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and, genera- in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. We're told in Matthew chapter 24, we're told in uh, Daniel chapter 7, we're told in Revelation chapter 19 that when Christ comes again, he comes in glory. Amen? It's a reference to the second coming. Jesus is saying there, that there's those who are ashamed of Jesus in this lifetime, and Jesus will be ashamed of the judgment of them. It's radical. Chapter 9, verse 1, now he speaks of the mission of his first coming. And he was also saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who shall not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. At the second coming, Jesus Christ will come with great glory. We're told in Matthew 24 that it'll be as lightning flashing from the east to the west that every eye will see the coming of the Son of Man and that he'll establish his kingdom and he'll rule and reign from Jerusalem. At the first coming, though, he came as a suffering servant. He came in humility, not on the white horse, but lowly and seated upon the donkey. And yet he came with Power. The kingdom was established with power. Where was the power? The power was in the cross. The power was through his submission to the will of God. We're told in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, that the cross is to those of us who are perishing foolishness. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The cross is the power of God. Romans chapter 1 verse 16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation. 
And so what was Jesus talking about when he said, some of you right here, this day at Caesarea Philippi, when he was speaking, some of you will not die before you'll see the kingdom established in power. He was talking about what he mentioned in verse 31 of chapter 8, his death upon the cross and his subsequent resurrection from the dead. In John chapter 18, Jesus is before Pilate. And Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, you said it, man. He says, well, what's the deal? What's going on here? And Jesus said, listen, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom was of this world, then my servants would fight for it. But my kingdom is not of this world. And his kingdom was established through the submission of the cross. Now, that is something that we've got to understand because our Christian lives are established through submission to the cross. First, salvifically speaking, or with regards to salvation, nobody comes to the Father except through Christ Jesus and only through the forgiveness of sins that was won for us, purchased for us on the cross. But secondly, with regards to discipleship, Jesus says it now in Mark 8, verse 34, the second part, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. There Jesus says it to the multitudes. He's been revealed as a Messiah. He revealed the cross. And Peter, remember Peter? Oh, Peter. Remember Peter last week? Remember Peter? The Lord says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Oh, Great job, mijo. The Father revealed that to you. And then he says, now here's the deal. Because I'm the Messiah, I'm the suffering Messiah, spoken of in Isaiah 53, I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to be delivered up. Understand this. But on the third day, I'll rise from the dead. And we're told, we read it last week in this chapter, that Peter takes him aside and begins to rebuke him. I can imagine Peter going, wait, everybody excuse us for a minute. Lord, come here. Lord, listen to me, dude. This, this doesn't sound good. You're supposed to be the conquering king. Don't talk about going to Jerusalem and you getting beat up on. We're going to go to Jerusalem and we're going to beat up on them. Jesus, this is not good. May it never be, bro. Okay, now go teach them something else. And what did Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. Call Peter Satan. One minute, Satan was inspired by God, the next by Satan. One minute, Peter was inspired by God, the next by Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Why Satan? What was the charge? Look at it in verse 33. Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. Not on God's interest, but man's. Let me tell you what God's interest is. God's interest is his glory. It's his kingdom. It's his name. It's his game. It's his creation. It's his way or the highway. He's interested in his glory and the objects of his affection, you and I. But if the two collide, there's going to be trouble. God will share his glory with nobody. And even our children are learning today, reality kids, that when God, uh, when man seeks to exalt himself against God and all that is godly, God will bring that man down. The Tower of Babel, they're studying it. Ask your children. And their key text is 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, and he will exalt you at the proper time. Oh, but not the kind of exalt you might be looking for. When we think exalt, we think, yeah. Finally, everybody's going to recognize that I'm the best. I'm the best looking, I'm the fastest, I'm the best surfer, I'm the best dirt biker, I'm the best preacher, I'm the best worker, whatever it is. Those are my problems, but whatever you think you're best at. God's going to deal with that issue in your life. That's why he says, if you want to follow me, you've got to have your mind on God's interest and not on man's. Man's is to exalt himself, my interest is to exalt my name. So if you want to come and follow me, deny yourself. What does it mean to deny yourself? To deny yourself. It doesn't mean that you've got to die a martyr's death. If it only meant you could follow Christ because you died for him, very few of us would be Christians. Not many of us would be called to die, on, or die for our faith. Nor does it mean that you have to deny your wonderful, quirky personality. God made you just how he wanted to make you. 
all the beautiful things about you, the idiosyncrasies, all that stuff, who you are. God made you. He's your father. He loves you how you are. He wants to redeem your personality. But denying yourself doesn't mean denying who you are in Christ. Nor does denying self correspond to self-denial. Oh, don't get tricky, Pastor. Just tell us what you mean. Denial of self doesn't mean, de- uh, doesn't mean uh, denying. Wait, now I'm tricked. <laughs> now nah, I fooled myself, man. Help me, Jesus. Uh, here's what I meant to say. Uh, the denying of self is not self-denial. Thank you, Lord. The denying of self is not self-denial. Self-denial is this. I'm going to deprive myself of something, and through that I'm going to be more like God and please God more. History has shown there's been many monks, many ascetics who have locked themselves in room and said, I'm going to deprive myself of all wicked stimulation from the world. And they've sat in there with them wicked selves and pined away at the fact that Jeremiah 17 is true all along, that they're desperately wicked and full of deceit in their hearts. It's not merely denying yourself something. It's denying who you are in your sinful nature. It's denying that person that says, my way, my will, my desires, my wants, my agenda, my passions, my position, my importance, my reputation, me, 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 me. It's denying that because that's contrary to God. Even Charles Spurgeon struggled with wanting to exalt himself, that wonderful preacher and pastor of days old. He writes this, recalling the days when he went to college. He says, When I resolved to enter college, I was walking across Midsummer Midsummer Common, just outside of Cambridge, revolving in my mind the joys of scholarship and the hope of being something in the world. When suddenly the text came to mind of Jeremiah 45, 5, Seekest thou great things for thyself? Seek them not. And then came to mind Mark six thirty three: Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all of these things shall be added unto you. And Charles Spurgeon says of that moment, All was given up. Everything was renounced. The finest prospects seemed to melt into thin air merely on the strength of that text, believing that God would most certainly fulfill to me His promise if I could keep His precept. What wonderful faith. God said it, I believe it, that settles it. That's what He said right there. And God is saying to us today, The kingdom principle is the denying of self and self-interest and putting above it the interests of God and the interests of others, the Bible tells us. When you study the New Testament, you understand that Christianity comes down to two things, Jesus Christ and others. It's not about you. You're just the thing that's stuck in the way, understand. It comes down to Jesus Christ and others. Denying self. What does it mean to take up the cross? James 4.10 says the same thing that 1 Peter 5.6 says. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that he might exalt you at the proper time. And as I said a moment ago, not the exalt we think, but exalt in the kingdom sense. Him using you. You being secure in your salvation. You being a humble servant of the Most High God, Jesus said it this way in Matthew twenty two twelve: Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. As I read that and quote that to you, it cuts me to the heart. Let me see if it does for you. Listen, you weren't listening the first time. Jesus said, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Anybody here, including me, anybody here ever been humbled by God? Oh, isn't it the most fun thing in the world? No, it's the worst thing that ever happened to you. When God has to humble you, man, it's like a hammer coming down on you because he loves you so much and because he's so zealous for his glory, for his kingdom, for his honor, and for your humility and your placement as one of his children. God will share his glory with no one. Verse 35. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel shall save it. Whoever seeks to save his life is going to lose it. What does he mean by that? 
He means those who seek to preserve themselves in this lifetime through their own strength and their own power. Uh, It's interesting. The Bible says that this body is decaying day by day. The outer man is decaying day by day. Can I get a witness? The out- Some of you act like you're not decaying. Oh, it's the new Westmont freshmen in here. They're like, no, I'm still getting good. But others of us, decaying day by day, and yet what do we seek to do to save ourselves? If I just work out enough, it won't sag to the ground anymore. And maybe I can just poke this and pull this and and pull this up and just change this a little bit. And listen, ain't nothing you can do. You are sagging and dragging and breaking and moaning and groaning because you're old now. (laughs) The Bible said it would happen. The outer man is decaying day by day. Don't get surprised and don't spend money trying to stop it. Put your money to kingdom work. You're going to get old. But, it says in the same verse, the new or the inner man is being renewed day by day. This is getting old, but the inner man is being rejuvenated, renewed, built up in Christ. But what do we do as Christians if we're honest? We give exorbitant attention to the outer man and little attention to the inner man. It's a bad investment. It's a bad investment. You're not going to see a return on that investment. The only return on investment is in your spirituality. And it comes through following Christ, which comes through denying yourself and picking up your cross daily. So if you seek to save your life and preserve it, self-interest, self-centeredness, self-glorification, your money, your power, your possessions, your place, your privileges, you will lose your life in the end, meaning eternally, you will spend eternity in hell because you never repented of your sins and relied upon God as your Savior. You trusted in yourself. Bad investment. And then he says, if you lose your life for my sake and the Gospels, you shall save it. What does that mean? Very simply, Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. That's what it means to lose your life for his sake, to confess him as Lord and you as sinner. And for the gospel's sake, John 1.12, it says, to as many as received him, to them has been given the right to be called the children of God. So there's a choice before you today. To follow after the things of the world or the things of God. But remember what Jesus said here in verse 36. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Understand this, people, especially young people. You can have anything that the world has to offer. You can have anything the world has to offer. The world is your oyster. Anything you want. You work hard enough, you go after it long enough, you can have or achieve anything you want to in this world. In fact, you have an advocate who will offer it to you. His name is Lucifer. He'll offer you all that the world has to offer. He'll promise it. He did that to Jesus. Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4, he tempted the Lord. He said, Jesus, if you're really Jesus, then turn these stones into bread. You've been fasting for 40 days. You must be hungry. Come on, satisfy the hunger of the flesh. Just do it. Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone, but by the every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Satan's going to tell you the same thing. Just satisfy your flesh. You've been a good boy. Just satisfy yourself. You deserve a break today. And then he said to Jesus, Jesus, if you worship me, I'll give you the kingdom. I'll give you the glory. All the kingdoms of the world have been given to me by man, and I can give them to whoever I want. Jesus, if you simply worship and follow me, I will give you all the kingdoms. In other words, Jesus, skip the cross, skip the self-denial, skip the humiliation. I'll give you the kingdoms right now. And Satan could have. And Jesus said, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Satan's going to tell you the same thing. You want power? He'll offer it to you. You want prestige? He's got it for you. You want possessions? He can come up with them. Anything you want. But who's your master? Who will you serve? And the last way he tempted our Lord in Matthew 4 and in Luke 4 was he took him to Jerusalem. They went up on the temple, up on the pinnacle of it. And he said, all right, Jesus, prove it. 
You're the Son of God, let's see it. Throw yourself down from the temple. Everyone will know then, and everyone will say, ooh and ah. Come on, Jesus. Be concerned about your reputation. Get a little glory early here. Prove yourself. Satan's going to say the same thing to you. Hey, what you need to worry about right now is your reputation and how you look in front of people. That's the voice of the enemy. What you need to worry about right now is your heart before your Lord and Savior and how you're walking to please Him. The enemy will offer you anything you want. The decision is yours. 1 John says that the things of this world, all that it has to offer, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life are all passing away. But he who does the will of God abides forever. And so the challenge is, choose today whom you will serve. Elijah was up on Mount Carmel and he called there the 450 prophets of Baal and the Asherah. And he challenged them to a showdown to see whose God was a real God. And he said to the people, Why do you waver between two opinions? He says in 1 Kings 18. Why are you wavering between two opinions? You keep going after these false gods. If God is God, serve him. But if Baal is God, serve him. Jesus said it this way. I wish you were hot or cold. But because you're lukewarm, I'll spew you out of my mouth. Hey, man, I didn't say that. I didn't write that. That's not my problem. It's between you and your God. He said it. But the Bible says, choose this day whom you will serve and don't waver between two. You can't serve two masters. Don't waver between the world. Lay aside the world. Pick up your cross. Deny self and follow him. Amen? Amen. Thank you, Lord, for your word, which is true and good and sure in every way. And I just pray now that you would minister it to our hearts as we worship you. That right now as we begin to worship, Lord, you would protect us from distraction. You would shield us right now in the name of Jesus. God, I pray that you would shield this congregation from the lies of the enemy. And that your truth would, would reign and prevail in the hearts of men and women. That we are sinners and need a Savior. And I pray that today people would repent. They'd simply say, Jesus, I've been wrong and you've been right. I repent of my sins. Save me. And that Christians everywhere in this room would make a decision today to walk for you, to begin to deny self in those areas, abandon this, surrender that, that we would surrender all to you, Lord. Thank you that you are intimately aware of our heart and you desire the fullness of it. You want us to love you and give you everything that we are. And so work this in us now as we seek you in worship. In Jesus' name, amen.